Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Hello, my name's Karen Eastwood and my guest today on Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories is Heather Rose, author of eight novels, including The Museum of Love, which won the 2017 Stella Award, the Christina Stead Prize and the Margaret Scott Prize. Her 2019 novel, Bruni, also won the 2020 General Fiction Book of the Year in the Australian Book Industry Awards. Under the pen name of Angelica Banks, Heather co-writes with Danielle Wood the Tuesday McGillicuddy series for children. Heather has worked in advertising, business and the arts as a mentor and teacher of writing and imagination. We'll talk about that later. She is a passionate advocate for the environment and a devotee to exploring the mysteries of living on this planet that she loves so dearly. And all of this is explored in her latest book, Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here, a memoir of loss and discovery. A warm welcome to you, Heather, and thanks so much for zooming in. Well, actually, we've we've given up on the Zoom. We're now over the phone chatting with me today. Thank you, Karen. It's so lovely to talk to you, and hello to all the New, Newcastle Libraries members. I'm very fond of libraries, and it's a delight to be here. Great. Now, this fabulous multi-themed, multi-layered book, it's, it's really hard to know where to start with it. It, it is a fantastically terrific read um so it's going to be a big one on the on the summer reads for all Novocastrians but we'll make a start on the theme of curiosity and bravery and I'd like to discuss with you the the difference or perhaps the relationship between those two words or the concepts and just leading into that I I recently read a, a Vincent van Gogh quote what would life be if we had no courage to attempt anything and when I saw this I thought of you and your story But I was wondering, for you, was it more innate curiosity rather than bravery that led you to experience all that you have in your life? Could you just share your thoughts on that one? The curiosity only became evident really to me, and this is ridiculous. I'm sure my friends and family would think this is ridiculous, but in writing the memoir, I had to find who I was right back there at age three, age six. I had to find the the view I had of the world in order to write authentically. And I don't think I understood what a curious creature I was until I put these stories together in the memoir and also felt a great deal of compassion for that young, for the little girl, for the young woman who embarked on so many strange adventures Mm. and often seemingly reckless choices that (laughs) had no reliable outcome and could have gone very wrong. I do think that curiosity has given me so many opportunities to look at the world in a different way and I'm still looking at the world with curiosity. It's eternally interesting to me, this thing we call life. And I I loved the opportunity to find that thread in in the book and realise, oh, maybe, maybe curiosity is 
another word for spirituality. Mm. Maybe when we're spiritual without any kind of religion, maybe what we're really saying is, I'm really curious about this thing called life. I'm really curious about this thing called death. Really curious about the emotions we have, the unexpected connections. The thing that leads us on. The thing that leads us on. Mm. Yes, isn't that lovely? And, And to be led on is a great thing because... I think stagnation is a a risk in life. Oh, yeah. That leads beautifully into the next question I have for you. After the sweat lodge experience, you have a powerful and recurring dream. And you say in the book, I've had vivid dreams all my life, but this is vivid in a whole new way. And in response to this dream, you choose to go to the US to experience a sun dance. Now, there's no question or doubt about what you're going to do. You're called and you respond, even though it means leaving behind your small son and and going without the full support of your then partner. And you write, it is gut-wrenching, mad, impulsive and utterly sane. Can you share with us what it is that makes it utterly sane? Well, as I say at the beginning of the book, I've spent my life asking people, had they ever had a curious experience? Had they ever experienced something that was in the world of the mystical or the magical? Did something ever happen that they couldn't explain that caused them to... Uh, feel safer or more supported or was just that salve at the time that they most needed it or encouragement. Are there, were there things, have they been visited by, by things they couldn't explain? And everyone, mm. everyone across the world throughout my life has always said, oh yes, there was that one thing. Yeah. And some people, of course, have many. That was, the experience of those dreams recurring and recurring and recurring to me. Mm. I didn't have any explanation for why I was having this repetitive dream. I, When I found out that what it was doing was calling me to a ceremony in, in Native American culture, it, 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 was, it was so hard to understand why that would be happening. Mm. But I also realized that I wasn't having these dreams for no reason. And in my experience of life, if we say no to those very powerful callings, mm. it's often when things go wrong or start to get more difficult. But if we say yes to those powerful callings, that's when we find a certain flow in life mm. and where we get the support and and the reassurance and the people to help us along the way. But I didn't know that then, let me say. <laughs> I had obviously spent a lot of time travelling, so I did know that beginner's luck is all sorts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you write at that time you know, that the great connection being in the, the natural environment where that ceremony takes place. And I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to the environment in Tasmania. And that goes right back to your childhood. And your childhood is described in the book. You write of it as, as being a really magical time filled with a cast of loving parents, siblings, grandparents, friends, community, and a playground of wilderness. And connection to nature is fostered. And and I especially love the passage in which your granddad, Burgess, encourages you to take in your surroundings as you fish together. And he says, look, Heather, that's what beauty is. So the, the Tasmanian wilderness is not just scenery, it's internal for you. Can you share with us how you've carried that with you? Mm, that was such a beautiful gift that he gave me and, and for all of us who have children in our lives mm. to teach them what beauty is. Yeah. Uh, it feels like such an important thing to do. It's not a given that we will see that if we aren't shown it. Mm. And for Grandad, his love of the outdoors, you know, he imbued me with that and I have gone through life 
loving camping, loving sailing, loving any reason to get outdoors. I'm a gardener. I I love a good walk on the beach in a wild wind like we have here today. In yeah. I, I love any opportunity with my children to be outdoors on a bushwalk or in you know camping. We have for years and years mm. always camped over the Christmas period. And again, in winter, we would go up to Lake St. Clair and enjoy the, the snow and all that that brings. So I... And to, to this day, I, I, I make sure I go outside. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the world that I inhabit. Yeah. And that's a daily practice of gratitude for yeah. this marvellous planet I live upon. Yeah, his influence has been with you forever, really. I mean, you know, for your whole life. Um, mm-hmm. There's something else he says to you, and again, I'll quote from the book, always turn around and see which way you've come. That way you'll always know the way back. And I wonder, have those words perhaps served as an internal compass, always bringing you back? And, and I'm thinking not only of your travels around the world and your eventual return to Tasmania, but also those sort of out-of-body experiences that you have had, like in the Australian Outback, as well as that episode at Lime Bay. Yeah, I, I really didn't see that until I wrote this book. I was writing about Grandad and I remembered him saying it to me. And I can feel myself on that particular occasion. And he turns me around. He puts his hands on my shoulders and he turns me around and there's this little path back through the bush down to their house, actually. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a very useful instruction. And I had no idea that it was also a metaphor. Mm. And it's been so useful in car parks and shopping centers <laughs> and just turn around and get your bearings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I do have a pretty good sense of direction, thanks to Grandad. Yeah. But I think more than that, I've, it, that instruction, when I got to the memoir and when I found and remembered that, I thought, oh, he was also telling me a rule for life mm. that it's really important to keep having a perspective on the past so that you know who you are in life. And I think this book helped me get an arc of that in a way that I've never acknowledged before. And that was hard to see. It was hard to see the vulnerability of that young woman in her teenage years and in her 20s. And it was painful revisiting Mm. those early memories where, Mm. uh, you know, the deaths happened. And that was harrowing, really harrowing. And there were other parts that were harrowing too. But Granddad's right, you know, it's only by looking back that first of all we can see how far we've come, Mm. but also get a sense of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And what a, you know, fabulous opportunity, you know, the writing of this book to give you that space to reflect and acknowledge all of that. It was an unexpectedly powerful process. I didn't think I was going to even survive it at times. I was such a puddle at the end of the day. Mm. But the, the sense now that it's done has been that it really was a work of healing as well. Mm, mm. And it's had that effect on my family. Uh, The people in my family who have read it so far have all been so grateful I wrote it because it's had a powerful effect on them being able to see the threads in their lives that were all born of these incidents too. Yep. Wow, that's that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, the book that keeps giving. Yes, it does. And, And my dad said to me, we all needed you to write this, Heather. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Isn't and, that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. And so your dad is still with you. That's great. He is still with us. He is precarious in his health, but he's still with us as of today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got an amazing ability to bounce back from very complex medical circumstances. But he he's sounds with us like today. it. Yeah, such tenacity. 
will. Mm, such tenacity, such a love for life and for his family. Yeah, he's a beautiful presence in the book and obviously in your life as well. Why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. I want to talk a little bit about grief because well, it is it is a big part of the book. It's not just about grief, but your understanding of grief begins early in your life after the death of Pa, your paternal grandfather, and you so tenderly describe your younger self observing your father's grief. And in the book you say, Grief is when nothing can be done and there's no going back to fix it and there's no going forward without knowing it can never be fixed. In another year, I will learn that grief is more than a feeling. It's a wound that breaks open again and again. The death of your brother has a devastating effect on your family, but Byron, your brother, actually helps you cope with his death by appearing to you. And he does this several times and you are totally at ease with his presence. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yes, after the funeral, I was sent away to Girl Guide Camp and I think that was probably for the best part of a week. Mm. And when I was delivered home, the house was empty and it was full of decaying flowers from the funeral. And I laid down on my bed and I just cried. Mm. I, I just completely, I completely let go and just cried. And the, the then there was this sense, uh, and I turned and in the doorway, my brother Byron was standing and he was a little bit transparent so I knew I wasn't seeing something real but at the same time it was him and he was smiling and he had this beautiful slow smile Byron and he was giving me that reassuring slow smile Mm. and the whole sense of it he didn't say anything but I felt that what he was saying to me and communicating was I'm okay Mm. uh, you don't need to worry about me I'm okay and that was really reassuring. I, I didn't know what that meant uh, mm. necessarily, what okay was like when you're dead. But there was a sense that I didn't have to worry about him. And it helped me probably focus more on on the living, the people who were living around me and obviously in such enormous grief. You sound like he was such an extraordinary human being. Mm. He, he, was, he was one of those people that I... I remember my dad said recently he'd have been brilliant in tech in Silicon Valley because mm. he was such an inventor mm, mm. and I'd never thought of that before. But yes, he seemed destined for for the technological age and yet not to be, mm. not to be, didn't mm. get past, didn't get to even turn 16. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing with death and the grief associated with death. You're reminded of it, you know, through all the milestones. Uh, you know, oh, so-and-so would be 50 now, so-and-so would be 60. Oh, we're, we're getting married. They would have got married or they would have, you know, the things that you assume about a person's life. But it's not just death that's that's something that you grieve. When those deaths, your, your um, grandfather's and your brother's deaths occur, your family collapses pretty much and... The, the the collapse of your family is also a huge loss in your life and that has, you know, the ripple effect, you know, uh, such as your mother's absence during the birth of your children. And so that's another thing that you explore at great length throughout the book as well. One of the quotes, again, from the book, 
I'd learnt from Pa's death and then Byron's and Grandad's that death could happen at the most unlikely unexpected moments. It could wreak havoc on everything that appeared stable and certain. I had set about making sure I lived. I chose life over and over again. So it was like, yep, I've endured this. I'm moving on from it. You know, there was no wallowing. There was this making the most of every moment that became such a big part of your life. Yes. I I mean, I think that appearance from Byron really taught me to not be afraid of death. Mm. Because it seemed there was something afterwards and he'd come back to report that he was okay. Mm. So I think that was powerful to have that experience at age 12 and then all the devastation of the loss of my family and Mm. yeah that was so hard Mm. really hard and of course that doesn't it's not easily reclaimed once it's gone it's gone and it was such a a hard part of life and I think it's you know my siblings we've all had to deal with that and uh, and my dad too and of course of course mum who has come back into my life um, in the last seven or eight years and that's been really delightful and it's not without its challenges of yeah. course because yeah. her version of the past is completely different to mine. I know and then this period of your life or, or you know I suppose this period of your life yes it's a huge time of forgiveness and acceptance you know to, to mm. be able to move on and, and renew or re-establish relationships with people who you feel have, have let you down or, or become absent and then come back you know. Mm, it's it's a, a lesson in forgiveness on a daily basis. Yes. <laughs> Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. I want to talk a little bit about your house guest who never leaves, as you say in your book. Having a um, chronic illness is like living with a house guest who never leaves. Towards the end of the book, you write so honestly and in great depth about physical pain and your relationship with it. So the reader is left in awe on realising that throughout the many wild travels and experiences, you were dealing with this pain. But you're adamant that you don't want it to define you, and I'm guessing that's why you left this chapter about your chronic illness until later in the book. Well, I just didn't want to tell you about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the elephant in the room. Because I've worked long and hard not to identify Mm. myself as someone who suffers from chronic pain and Mm. who has, you know, um, an arthritis that I've had since childhood. Mm. And as I tell in the book, you know, it's had a huge impact on my life. I've had months and weeks where I've not been able to walk and I'm grateful every day that I can walk. Yeah. But I also have an enormous empathy for anyone who's living with chronic pain or any kind of disability because the world does not understand that very much and we certainly are not very good at, at creating a world that's easier for people because mm. of that. Yeah. I mean, that can be mental pain as well as physical pain. I, I'm, I'm horrified by the lack of care and consideration we give to uh, people with mental illness yeah well I think it's tied up in our in our obsession with 
living fast you know we're always in a rush and we we don't take the time to be there for people we don't take the time to listen to and and understand where people are coming from what their story is what brings them to this point in time and we're so busy trying to make sure it fits in with us you know mm, mm. Um, and the medical system and the legal system there are so many areas in the health system mm. so many areas that we could do so much better for people in pain management be that mental or physical pain yeah yeah you write about because you are incredibly philosophical about pain and grief and there's one quote from the book the sacred wound of grief received by my 12 year old self has been one of my greatest teachers chronic pain has been one of my greatest teachers there is a choice we can suffer or make miracles and you live by this you often say you choose joy so how can you can, well can you share with us how you create and, and sustain that joy well i first discovered the ability to do that really uh, i mean in nature mm. that when i'm in nature i feel joyful mm-hmm. and then of course when when i have to go down the tunnel of you know a severe flare up and i'm for weeks and weeks on end unable to get out of bed uh, in excruciating pain even trying to go to the bathroom on walking sticks and then the slow progression back into life mm. it it would be easy and I really feel sorry for people who have to manage this every day. Mine at least comes in episodes and flares. Mm. It's not constant. Um, I mean, there's always constant pain, but it's not severe like that. Mm. And the the sense that my joyfulness is a way to diminish the pain. Mm. So what I noticed over time has been that if I elevate my emotions into love and gratitude and joy, pain doesn't seem to be able to have such a, a hold on me. It's almost as if they're an inverse um, relationship. Yeah. That the, more, the, the, the sorrier I feel, or the more depressed I allowed myself to become, the, the more the pain was apparent. And so over time I used meditation to elevate my, my experiences of my emotions. And, uh, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza is one of my favourite people in this space. He is very, very good at doing guided meditations that elevate emotion. I have loved that practice, which has been going on now for a number of years for me. So elevating my emotions either through meditation, but also by going out in the sunshine and walking the beach and leaving my mobile phone behind yes. and leaving my tech yes. away from me, making sure that it's away from me. It doesn't help. The tech is is such a drain emotionally I think yeah so I'm very rigorous in when I will be with my devices and when I won't be with them and people have a lot of time getting hold of me and they get annoyed about that but I think I'm living my life yeah I'm doing what I need to do yeah yeah totally god it's so liberating isn't it to you know not have your phone with you Oh, it's it, it's almost as if we have no recollection of that. It feels as if we're undressed, <laughs> yes. that it's become such an onerous thing that one is meant to be available. Yes. But as you would well know, living a creative life takes a lot of thinking time and it takes a lot of uh, expanding our imaginations. And that yeah. doesn't come from staring at a screen. No, no. And yeah, nature is just such a great way to recharge. It always has a gift for us. I think if we go out in nature, you'll you'll always be gifted with something beautiful. Yeah, 
Yeah, connecting to country. I'm just reading The Dreaming Path, actually, and there's a lot of connecting to country. I mean, look, it's ancient. People have known this for so long. We're only waking up to it, really. <laughs> yes, we've got ourselves sort of absorbed into a microverse that's created by technology to keep our attention. Yeah. But actually, look at what else we could be attending to. Mm, mm. You give your eldest son a fabulous gift. I want to talk a little bit about Big Connection with Nature, the Overland Trail that you complete with your eldest son as a rite of passage. And it really is such a gift to you both. Um, As a mother of two now young men, I have huge admiration for you choosing to do that journey because I I can just hear the complaints that my kids would, would give. But now that you're Christopher as an adult, no doubt you've had plenty of conversations about that time and we know that he eventually forgave you for making him go. But in what ways has that experience shaped your relationship with him? We were great friends before that, but I think we we became even greater friends beyond it because the sense that I actually watched him go through a physical and emotional passage yeah. where he starts with so much doubt about why on earth he's chosen to do this and going off with his mum in the wild and then in the middle of it all to realise he maybe doesn't have the physical capability. Yeah. And then to see him emerge at the end of that with a sense of himself as a young man, I wouldn't I wouldn't give that back for anything. No. And I think when a son when a mother can see that in her son, she can really see the young man he is and the man he'll become. Yeah. I imagine that's extremely affirming for the young man in question. Mm. And I, I I lament the loss of ritual that we have in life in that regard these days in Western civilization and I, I would really encourage anyone with with young men and young women in their lives to to consider what rituals they might put in place to to acknowledge them as they're growing up. Yeah. It's so important. Christopher now lives in America, so we're a long way from each other, but there's never any doubt about the love we have for each other, and we're always up for an adventure together. We had an adventure earlier this year. We went skiing and uh, travelled around California together, so our adventures continue. Oh, that's so good. That's I can imagine it's um, one of those big sort of milestone events. Okay, so on to one of the last topics I want to talk about is is writing. <laughs> um, mm. While you do have a thirst to understand life, there are also some things that you appreciate as being inexplicable. They are just what they are. I know um, when you were interviewed on ABC's Top Shelf about your favourite artworks, you spoke of the film The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and you said, we have no idea why we love the people we love. We're, we're just helpless in the face of it. And I think about you in writing and I know you also said in the book, every book demands more than I think I can give. Every novel, every book takes everything. So can we talk a little bit about what it is that compels you to write <laughs> because I can't stop <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things it's one of those things that's been with me all my life I started writing before I could read I would I would uh, as I relate in the mm. memoir there's a moment where I'm at the kitchen table mum has given me butcher's paper to draw on because she's a wonderful artist and I am scrawling, you know, scrawling across this page, line after line after line. And she turns around and she looks at me and says, why are you ruining that paper? <laughs> and I said, I'm writing. <laughs> so precious. So I'd obviously seen books and I'd seen what the words 
yeah. looked like on the page. It was in but you. Mm. it was in me right from the start. And you know, my my mind gets too busy if I don't write. Yeah. All the characters keep swirling about, and sentences keep appearing, and I just have to take myself off and write things down just yeah. to keep life simple. Yeah, and and for those writers who are listening in, can you share a little bit about your writing habits, your process, or your discipline? Mm. Well, for me, I never have any problem thinking up ideas. It's which one I focus on yeah. is the one that is hard. In every book, I always set myself a higher bar. I, I give myself a new challenge. Oh, all right, let's do this, let's do that. And that has ended up with my books being very different from each other. Yeah. But I didn't intend to set out to write different genres. I just wanted to explore different aspects of writing and research and what would happen if a person committed a crime and they escaped to Tasmania? What would happen if a woman was a fish at night and a woman by day? You know, what would happen if someone blew up a bridge? You know, what would I do to protect my homeland? Yeah, yes. I was watching the Palestinian, you know, Israeli conflict, and I thought, was at a time where I, there was there'd been another suicide bomb, and I thought, wow, that's a huge thing to do, isn't it? To kill yourself mm. uh, as a way of making a political statement. And I thought, well, I wonder what I would do mm. to protect Tasmania. What would I do? Yeah. And that that was really the birth of Bruni. So, uh, yes, in every, in every case, I started with a question for myself in, and also a question for the craft. I, I love plot, but I love character yeah. even more. And I use the characters to follow the plot. I never know what's going to happen. Uh, I, I have no idea. I'm definitely a panther, not a plotter. <laughs> I'm a bit of a panther writer. Yep, yep. And I'm, I'm rigorous. I, I mean, my, I'm always at my desk at a certain time. I I'm schedule my days very carefully. I only do admin and email on a Friday morning. I, I'm at my desk at either 6am or 9am or 11am, depending on how the week is working. But then I've got at least a six-hour run at it and often I'll go back for another three or four hours and I do, up until very recently I never took weekends so I will once I started to be able to write full time which was only after the Museum of Modern Love yeah. won those beautiful prizes once I had a chance to work during the day because all my other novels were written from nine o'clock at night that was my starting time yeah. and I was running a business and I had three children and it was a, a crazy way to do it but I wanted to be a writer so much and I wanted to write a shelf full of books. So that's the way you get them done is you have to sit down and write. And you have to write for a good amount of time and getting past the distractions and all the pleasures of a sunny day or, you know, a party or whatever it is that that are the distractions and they're a myriad. Um, Especially if you're working from home. (laughs) Yes, they are myriad, aren't they? When you're working from home, even doing the washing, Oh, yeah. uh, so there's a thousand reasons to get up from the chair, but I remember hearing that Bryce Courtney put a belt on his chair and belted himself into his chair so he actually couldn't get up unless he took the chair with him. Oh, my God, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too, but I liked it. I thought, okay, you've really got to sit down. And one of yeah. the things I teach my students is if you sit down and just let things flow for 10 minutes, that voice that says there are other things to do will usually have disappeared and suddenly you're in the flow of the work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that beautiful sweet spot, isn't it? 
Your openness to life, to the universe, spirit, whatever we call it, that's definitely contributed to your work as a writer. Um, and I know you've described characters having spoken to you and sort of compelled you and um, guided you through books as well. Absolutely. Yes, they're very strong. They come in with their own voices and and their own ideas about life. And I remember years ago, the wonderful Australian writer who lives here in Tasmania, Catherine Scholes, mm. said to me, the trick was to be a fly on the wall yeah. with a novel. I was working on The Butterfly Man at the time. And so I imagined myself as a fly on the wall in Henry's amazing house up on the mountain. And that was very, very helpful to me. I could suddenly hear all the conversations and I could see the interactions between all the characters. So whatever we can do to help those characters feel fully human in our lives, I think that's one of the greatest tricks with writing yeah. is to give them the time. And sometimes that's, that's part of going for a walk or staring out the window or driving the car. Often if I'm in the car on my own, I'll have a lot of download from characters mm. because it's a quiet moment. Yeah. But making sure there are quiet moments is, you know, it's not easy in life, but it's essential for that writing process, I think. Yeah, yeah, to give them that space to speak to you or for the idea to emerge, for the muse to, you know, yeah. It, they are magical moments, those. makes such a difference in the process and, and allows things to just flow again. Yes, yes. I mean, by the time I finish a novel, I almost feel like they're wandering about in the kitchen with me. They're yeah. almost fully formed and about to cross into the real world. And it gets busy, of course, it gets busy in my mind. So yeah. I get very vague, actually, in life. I, yeah. the, full, the fuller my mind is with a book, the more vague I am yeah. in the real world. But that's just part of the journey. Yeah. I'm sure your family's used to that by now, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So i like to just finish just on a reflection that you know your book serves as a reminder or an invitation to be open to life and I'm not like spending four days fasting and sleep deprived in the desert isn't for everyone and that's especially coming from someone who needs breakfast it's more importantly the um, cup of tea at the start of the day but I suppose it's that invitation it's about sort of everyday living in the moment and tuning into the beauty around us which really is a much-needed message or reminder for the world that we're currently living in. I think it's a real gift. I'd like to thank you, Heather, for that. And, and thank you for chatting with me. Really grateful that you, you've connected with us on Newcastle Libraries, Your Summer Stories. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been such a delight to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production.